You've been much alone these last few years. Alone and angry. I will not live forever. I wish to see you contented. Happy even. You think a man will do it? A family. I had a family. What would you have me do? If it was for advantage, you would have wed Lena Valarian. I think it was all bangers all the time. All bangers all the time. Seven blessings to you, my friends, and welcome back to All Bangers, otherwise known as ABP, an unofficial Game of Thrones House of the Dragon podcast where we dive deep and analyze every House of the Dragon episode scene by scene in fine detail, free of any spoilers from Fire and Blood. I am your host, Sir Vizzy of House Vizarion, here to cover episode three of HBO's House of the Dragon. As always, follow 150,000 other film and TV fans who follow me on Instagram at Visualize Cinema. Every Monday I post up an IG story. You guys can send in a raven and maybe I'll answer it on the podcast. So I'm going to answer a few follower questions throughout today's breakdown. You guys sent in some good ones and a few of them made me really think and even do some research. So shout out to you guys and gals who, who sent those in. But initial thoughts up top on the episode. I like the episode. I think it's a solid episode. Everything before the battle and the Stepstones I loved. And then the Stepstone stuff, I liked. Okay, like, I guess, like, to me, the political machinations and the manipulation and the character, ve- the character development through the dialogue is always far more intriguing to me than the action and the battles. It's like that with, with anything that I watch. It's just my personal state, personal taste. But, yeah, man, I mean, very solid episode. I'm, wi- I'm waiting to be blown away by the show, and I know it's coming. So for me to come out and, and say... Every episode is the best thing I've ever seen. That would be pretty disingenuous of me. But when that when that one episode hits, when that does happen, and something truly blows me away, you guys are going to know it. You guys are going to hear it in my voice. But if I had to rate this episode on my rating scale, that goes from fuck you all the way up to like better than sex, I'd give this like, I'd give episode three a full price, which is pretty much the equivalent of like a four out of five. Or like 8 out of 10. Yeah, I'd probably give like an 8 out of 10. But yeah, man. I mean, let's get into it real quick. Um, House of the Dragon Season 1, Episode 3, titled Second of His Name, written by Ryan Condal, directed by Greg Yatanis again. My boy, Greg. You know, he's actually, I mean, I want to dox myself. I don't live in the area anymore, but he was born a few towns over from me, which is pretty cool. But here's the, uh, here's the description of the episode. Damon and the Sea Snake battle the Crab Feeder. The Realm celebrates Aegon's second name day. Rhaenyra faces the prospect of marriage. So, uh, opening scene here, we open up with a shot of uh, the Valyrian house sigil burning. Uh, how this entire sequence was lit was really something. Uh, it was really, really beautifully lit. Really did appreciate the the lighting and the cinematography in this. And even the editing in this in this opening scene, the pirates are searching for survivors to kill or hand over to the crab feeder to fulfill his kink. We have a Damon fanboy talking shit. Crab feeder's got the sons of the harpy masks gone. Uh, I think I mentioned that last week. I thought I thought it was an OG harpy mask. That's what we call a common busy dub. The crab crab feeder nails his hands to the post. Dude says, "Fuck your whole mother." 
and bastard father. But I get I get the impression that Drehar is the type of dude who probably axed his parents, right? Talk about my daddy all you want. Here, take this crab. And take this one. And this one. But Damon and Caraxes, shrouded in darkness above the fire and smoke, hover over and torch these youths. And I love the constant flow of fire from Caraxes' mouth here. It felt like it was never ending. So I thought that was really, really cool. Uh, Damon st- <laughs> the Damon stands, screams his name, and laughs. Prince Damon! <laughs> Goes to show that these foot soldiers look at Damon like he's a god. But Caraxes lands on our boy. Damon probably didn't even see him underneath Caraxes, I'd imagine, right? I mean, Caraxes is so huge. But Damon wouldn't really have cared anyways. He's not out for anybody but himself and to bring honor and glory to his house and to, to even fight for his brother. But yeah, man. I was thinking, if this was the Rings of Power, you'd get like an eagle coming in and saving this red shirt instead of like stepping on him and crushing him. But uh, the Triarchy retreats back into the caves as Throat Goat Caraxes drowns them in fire. At one point, Caraxes eviscerates a dude, and all that's left of him is just like a single leg from the knee down. But this tactic of using the caves to hide from the dragons is actually a Dornish tactic that they ripped from the books. A lot of subtle winks at the book this episode. Uh, again, love that from Condal. Knows, uh, shows that he really appreciates the war, appreciates George's writing. Uh, but the Triarchy is taking a page out of the Dornish playbook here. Um, it's like, look, your dragons ain't shit if our armies are using the cave system on these islands to hide from you. You know, we can hide in the caves. We can rest up, bellies full of meat and mead. Our resolve is still sound. The, f- the men are fed, right? They're getting rest. The rapport is great within the ranks. We're playing board games and singing. We probably bought a f- few free city whores for the journey. We have the Iron Banks backing. We're sinking the Valerian fleet every day. Triarchy living good, man. But we get this line we, we get this line delivery from Matt Smith, and I thought it was really weak. Like, it is it, extremely weak. It's funny, because he has such a high-pitched voice, like, when he screams. And these were his only lines in the episode, too, which is crazy. He's like, where are you? Come out and face me, Dreha. Come out, Dreha. Where are you? I'm going to feed you to your own crabs. Where are you? And not the best line delivery from Matt Smith, man. Would have liked to hear more like menace and rage in his voice. Especially at this point. It's been two years and, and Damon hasn't smoked these fools. His campaign in the Stepstones is failing. Here he sounded like a Disney villain villain or something. It's easy to overlook because of what he does at the end of the episode, but I got to keep it a buck and, and call that out real quick. I did not like that line read. But the Triarchy, uh, they provide cover fire for their men retreating into the caves, and Damon has to spin Caraxes around and get him out of there, but not before he takes a flaming arrow to the shoulder. Um, and Caraxes, uh, like screams as the arrow like hits... Uh, Damon, so that goes to show me that there's even a there's a stronger bond between Dragon Rider and Dragon than I initially anticipated for the show, which is cool to see. But Caraxes worms his way out of there. Boy has huge wingspan. Would have been you know top three draft pick in the NBA, first team all NBA, 
no doubt. But we cut to King's Landing, and it's Prince Aegon II's second name day. Everyone gathers around to celebrate the heir. We dolly back here and get Sir Hobart Hightower talking to his younger brother Otto. Hobart's the oldest, making Otto a second son. And since Otto's a second son, he has nothing to gain really within the family if Hobart has a son. I forget at this point if Hobart has a son or not. I don't think he does. Um, Hobart's pressuring Otto to get Viserys to make Aegon his heir. Because remember, at this point, Viserys hasn't formally unnamed Rhaenyra as the heir. And the Lords of Westeros still have their O's that they swore to Rhaenyra. And Hobart was like one of those lords at the end of the episode one, right? He was one of those dudes that swore fealty to, uh, to Princess Rhaenyra. But Hobart here, he's pressuring Otto. Because think about it. Aegon on the throne, half Hightower. The Hightowers move up a peg on the Forbes top families of 109 AC list, right? So Ho- Hobart's really pressuring Otto to make this shit happen. But Tywin Lannister comes in. He brings word from the Stepstones that it ain't going so hot for Damon and Corlys. Damon's reckless behavior has caused dissension within the ranks. Viserys is like, uh, I mean, Viserys doesn't en- endorse the war, right? And we know up to this point he likes to avoid the harsh responsibilities of being king. He avoids making decisions that, as he says, makes one person happy and another angry so with every episode we're learning more and more about how weak Viserys truly is we learn how unworthy he is and there's plenty of narrative and and symbolism in this episode to to back that up even more so than the first two episodes but we see Allison for the first time here as queen pregnant again living her best life we'll get to that later but Tywin's Tywin's up in Viserys's ear and Viserys just he just wants to know where Rhaenyra is. He asks Sir Lionel, then aggressively asks Sir Criston, since Sir Criston is her sworn protector of the Kingsguard, but he don't know, or is he covering up for Rhaenyra? I don't know. But we cut to the Godswood, and Rhaenyra has this bard playing a one-song Spotify playlist on repeat for her. Uh, he's singing a song about Nymeria's request, but... When we first see Rhaenyra and Alicent in the Godswood, Alicent, it's interesting because Alicent is reading her a passage about Nymeria. So it's clear to me that Nymeria is a hero of Rhaenyra's. Uh, And Nymeria is fitting because, like Rhaenyra, she too was trying to fit or trying to fill the role of conqueror at one point in her lifetime. But this bard gave me major Mushroom vibes. Uh, If you don't know who Mushroom is, Mushroom is tied to Rhaenyra in the books, but in the books, he's a little person. Here, he has some height to him. Um, could be Connell playing on book readers' hopes that it was Mushroom that, that showed up in the show, but again, we, we get this bard's name. His name is Samwell, so, um, you know, that, that was like a, a quick, oh my god, is it Mushroom? Is it Mushroom? Nah, it's this Ute Samwell, so. Allison comes to Collector uh, before the they head down to the King's Road, to the King's Wood for the, for the hunt. Allison did a lot of belly rubbing this episode. Emily Carey was sharing a bunch of maternal photos on Instagram Sunday. Uh, you can tell she had fun playing pregnant, which is cool. And she looked beautiful. Hey, if I ever had a kid, um, you know, I hope pregnancy agrees with my lady the way it does for Allison. So shout out Emily Carey with a big belly. Love it. The bard's like, your grace. 
And Rhaenyra's like, did I say stop, bitch? What? F- but full well knowing that Alicent's right there. Because nobody this nobody at this point addresses Rhaenyra as your grace. Alicent calls her name and Rhaenyra says, yes, my queen, without even flinching, just confirming she's not unfazed by Alicent's presence here at all. And uh, Alicent orders Samuel to go. But Rhaenyra says, you are to stay by order of the princess. And this is another example of Rhaenyra trying to bend the world to her will. Still trying to hold on here, my girl. Uh, remember, she. This is something she tried to do with Rainies in episode two when they had that when they had that spat on the balcony. But uh, here, Rhaenyra talks to Alicent like she talks to her dad. Very dismissive. Doesn't give a shit. There's like there's like no light to Rhaenyra anymore. It's almost as if she's empty, hollow, nothing to live for anymore. She was to be queen. Now that's a shot in the dark. Before that's all she, but before before all of this happened, all she wanted to do was see the world on Dragonback with Allison and eat cake. But Allison pulls rank on her. She's the queen to a Targaryen after all. She says the queen demands you to leave the Godswood at once. Just putting her in checkmate. Kind of foreshadowing, and this probably breeds more resentment in Rhaenyra. Like Allison isn't doing it to be a bitch. She's not. It's, it's clear she's pained by the current state of their relationship. And I bet Allison doesn't even... Honestly, I bet Allison doesn't even want Viserys. She's too young. She's too hot. Right? You think she wants a dude with eight fingers and a fucked up back? Hell no. I don't think so. Just a few, just a few years ago, Rhaenyra was laying on Allison in the same spot as Allison read to her. So this is a very good contrast of of time, of how time passed and how a lot's changed, but not much has changed, right? Rhaenyra was named the heir. She was chosen to succeed and be the queen. Now her ex-bestie is the queen. And Rhaenyra, like Rhaenys, is a queen who never was. Life comes at you pretty fast. Remember last episode when Rhaenyra took a shot at Rhaenys saying, the realm rejected you, Rainies, the queen who never was. But I think the Godswood is going to be a very poor, the Godswood is going to be very important in their arcs, Alicent and Rhaenyra, and we're going to get more encounters here between the two of them. But we get this beautiful shot of the caravan riding up the King's Road with King's Landing in the backdrop. You can see the Red Keep. Uh, never seen King's Landing from this angle before in Thrones, so that's a new shot. Love that. We get our first awkward family trip. And just to recap here, it goes like this. Okay. <laughs> how do all right, how, how do I how do I present this? Because it's it's so convoluted. Okay, so it's it, it goes like this. Okay. If uh if I were Rhaenyra and I, I I had to explain the situation to a random, I know it's gonna be confusing the way I say this, but it's like my best friend is now my stepmother. Her son is now my brother. I was named heir by my father. But my best friend slash stepmother's son, who's my brother, is now the firstborn son of my father. And now my father has no use for me. And I'm just waiting for him to renounce me and name my brother, who's the son of my former bestie, now stepmother. 
Like that's that's the dynamic that's going on inside this wheelhouse right here. So yeah, Rhaenyra is just being a brat here. And I think any teenage girl who's dealing with this level of relationship dynamics would be. But at least she's free to be an angsty teen. Allison can't be an angsty teen. She doesn't have the luxury of being an angsty teen. She's pregnant. She's the wife of the king. She has a father who continues to use her as a political pawn. There's a lot of expectation with Allison, just like there's a lot of expectation put on Rhaenyra, but Allison goes along with it, whereas Rhaenyra rejects it, right? But Allison goes on to say, oh, Aegon came with no fuss, which I thought was a big slap in the face to Rhaenyra's mother's memory. But I, I think she caught herself after, after the fact, after she said it, she realized how insensitive she just sounded, which shows she still cares for Rhaenyra. Everything in this episode shows that Allison care, still cares for Rhaenyra. Everything she does in this episode is for Rhaenyra, which is sad because Rhaenyra doesn't really realize it, right? But we get Viserys here. He's trying to give her an olive branch, asks her to ride out with him to join the hunt. She's like, why would I do that? He's like, because you're my daughter and you have duties. Not because you're my heir, right? It's because you're my daughter still. Rhaenyra's like, I don't like the squeals of boars when they die. Kind of foreshadowing of what happens later on when she kills the boar that attacks her. But Rhaenyra's like, no one's here for me. I'm basically an afterthought. I'm forgotten. The histories will always remember me as the sister of King Aegon II. So nothing I do really matters anymore. And you can see the look on Viserys' face here. It hurts him to see that his daughter thinks this way about herself. Because we see at the end of the episode, Viserys is like, I just want to see my daughter happy. But I think it's in this moment where he realized what he's done to her. Forget the politics of it all. As a father, he's taken away her joy to live. And I think that would hurt any father. Right? She's she's close to something. She was so close to to being named um, or, or sending the Iron Throne. She almost saw it realized. She's now of age. But she hasn't been crowned because her father had a son who hasn't been named yet as heir, like formally named as heir before the Wars of Westeros. But in the court of public opinion, everybody believes Aegon II will be named, so they treat him like the heir, even if he hasn't been formally named yet. But the king's caravan arrives at camp. We see the Red Keep off to the south. Gives us perspective on where we are on the map. Really cool to see. We get our first look at Lionel Strong's sons, the clubfoot, Larry Strong. It's said that his foot was twisted at birth. So he walks with a limp and a cane. And there's some theories that uh, are talked about in the fandom that he f that uh, regarding his affliction and that he fakes his, his twisted foot and he fakes his limp. It's neither confirmed nor denied in the books, but there is cause for speculation, right? Um, his older brother, right next to him here, Sir Harwin Breakbones Strong, the heir to Harrenhal. We'll talk about him later too. Uh, across from them, we get the Lannisters of Castle Rock, Tyland and Jason Lannister. They're doing the whole Army Hammer, Winklevoss twins thing from Social Network. 
my theory is Tylen. I mean, my theory, I haven't really seen anybody talk about this yet, but my theory is probably Tylen and Jason probably swap roles. They're identical twins, right? They could easily swap roles, parent trap style. If one situation aligns with one twin's strength, that twin will step in and represent House Lannister and vice versa. Something to think about. But Sir Hobart says, Hail Aegon, the conqueror babe, second of his name. Here's to his grace on his second name day. He knows what he's doing. Aegon's his nephew, right? Second degree nephew, but his nephew nonetheless. He's half Hightower. He wants that he wants him on the throne. But Rhaenyra remains in the wheelhouse here as they cheer her brother on. And it's just it's so sad to see Rhaenyra. She's like, fuck. Like, I don't want to be here. But inside the tent, Jason Lannister creeps on Rhaenyra. Viserys looks on. He just looks like a fuckboy. Jay Lan. But notice Rhaenyra's hair braid here. It's the same as the ring that Damon gave her. I thought that was a nice touch. Allison's hanging out with all the old hags, talking gossip. And then the clubfoot comes in, right? Larry's strong and says, he isn't much for hunting. Can he sit with them? Allison says, of course, of course. And this is where that theory of Laris faking his clubfoot could be at work here. That's what I think. Could he be using his affliction as an excuse to sit with the ladies who gossip and talk shit all day to gather information for his father to stay one step ahead of everybody else? Something to think about. I mean, during these types of events, this is where all the tea is being spilled by the ladies of the court, right? Uh, Kira Lannister, she's talking about Lady Joanna, uh, a lady of high birth, being sold to a pillow house in Lease. And Lease is known in the books for its ladies of the night. So we hear she's kid- kidnapped by the pirates in the Stepstones and sold off to one of these Essos brothels. And the ladies just dismiss it, which is interesting. Like, oh, that's too bad. Uh, it's interesting because Lady Joanna is basically one of them. She's a lady of the court. She's a lady of high birth. So it just goes to show that these ladies gathered around talking shit. They don't care about one another. I thought that was a nice touch too. But back to Larry Strong here for a second. Remember in Fire and Blood, uh, George writes three different realities for every event. Okay. So Ryan Condal has to choose one reality from the sh- for the show. And although it was never explicitly stated in the books that Larry Strong was faking his clubfoot, moments like this show me as a book reader that Ryan Condal is playing on these theories since he's a fan himself, which is always great to see. Because at the end of the scene, Lady Redwine is like, um, your father doesn't acknowledge that we are at war. She's talking to Rhaenyra here. Your father doesn't acknowledge where we are at war at, as the realm. And Rhaenyra, Rhaenyra is like, you know, what have you done for the realm, Lady Redwine, other than eat cake? And then it cuts back to Laris biting into a cookie. And then he looks over to Alicent. Could he be spying on Alicent to see how she, as the queen, reacts, how she takes news, how she reports news or handles her court of ladies? But if you think back to Thrones, man, I mean, characters who have afflictions have other talents. Like, Tyrion is the best example of this. I must do my part for the honor of my house. Wouldn't you agree? 
But how? Well, my brother has his sword, and I have my mind. And a mind needs books like a sword needs a whetstone. That's why I read so much Jon Snow. And then remember this one. Let me give you some advice, bastard. Never forget what you are. The rest of the world will not. Wear it like armor. And it can never be used to hurt you. So, with these quotes in mind, these quotes were ripped directly from the page of the book, which is cool. With these quotes in mind, we learned that in George's world, characters who have ailments or disabilities have other uses. Sometimes those uses are of far greater importance to the realm. We also know that nothing is as it seems in George's world, right? I mean, look at Varys. The dude is a eunuch, right? As the kids say, brothers, we must stay focused, right? His mind isn't clouded by that type of lust. So he makes for a great master of whispers. He's wise. He's cunning. He's the best at what he does. Just something to think about with Larry Strong here. I think Larry Strong is our Varys. Somebody who likes secrets. Oh, my foot. I cannot hunt. Can I sit with you, ladies? Right? But, you know, Lady Redwine's like, yeah, your, your, your father, you know, he doesn't believe we're at war. Rhaenyra's like, fuck y'all bitches. I'm out. She leaves the tent. She's greeted by Lord Jason Lannister, Casterly Rock, who dotes on her. Turns her vision the other way to get a look at her ass. Basically says, listen, if you were my wife, I'd build you a dragon pit on the, at the rock. I'd do anything for my queen or lady wife. He's basically talking to her as if they're already betrothed. But the Lannisters look broke as shit at this point, man. <laughs> they, don't, they don't look like the Lannisters we see in Thrones. Not yet. But... Rhaenyra's like, yeah, all right, bro. All right, bro. Like, I know what's up. I know what you're trying to do. She struts back into the tent and confronts Viserys about how Lord Jason just offered him to uh, offered himself to her. Viserys is like, since you turned 17, I got dudes from all over the realm who want that ass. And she's like, I don't want to get married. And Viserys snaps, saying he doesn't even he doesn't exist above tradition and duty. And I get big Elizabeth the first vibes here from Rhaenyra. Elizabeth I didn't want a husband to outrank her, so she never married. And I don't think, I don't think this is Viserys' idea to tell Lord Jason to approach her. I actually think this is an auto idea. It's got auto written all over it. It's sloppy auto strategy. Think about it. If if Aegon is named the heir, and Lord Jason takes Rhaenyra to be his wife. This means that Rhaenyra gets shipped off to Casterly Rock on the other side of Westeros, on the other side of the continent. She's no longer a threat. So even though, we, even though we've skipped two years, Rhaenyra's disposition here hasn't changed when she's talking to her father here. She's arguing with Viserys. She's still young. She's still emotional. She's still rebellious. Politics and tradition don't matter to her. She's really salty here, and I don't blame her. But Otto comes in and says, the huntsman's found a white heart in the Kingswood. And the stag is the king, of, the white heart is a stag that is the king of the Kingswood. And that this was a sign from the gods on Prince Aegon's name day. And you see Viserys here half-heartedly laugh it off to the crowd who's watching on. And we know Viserys is a dreamer. 
right? He believes in prophecy. So much so that he ordered the, the death, ordered the murder of Queen Emma in episode one to see that prophecy restored. So he gives this nervous look to the crowd. Like, oh shit, like I, the last time I did something for prophecy, remember what happened. But Rhaenyra storms off out of the tent. She rides off on her horse into the King's Wood. Sir Crispin chases after her. We see C Sir Criston here. He's the only person who can really calm her down and take her out of her feelings. He's like, my princess, we should totally go back. No? Okay, great. Let's keep going this way. <laughs> like, totally, like, we have to think that Sir, Sir, uh, Sir Criston's like, man, like, I want that. I want that. She she find us out. Like, I want that. But they walk through the Kingswood and, and Kristen tells her, yo, like, when I was young, I was piping all the ass in Storm's End, but I can never marry. Gotta think he was like a sugar baby to like some unsatisfied wife of some high lord, just like sneaking out of windows after blowing backs out and shit. <laughs> but Viserys picks up. Um, we cut to Viserys. He picks up a bunch of shit with his bare hands crazy man dude's losing fingers and he's t he's picking up white heart shit fresh two to three hours right the lord's like it's like it's it's the, these droppings have been here no longer than three hours your grace the target soldier says before the dragons came to westeros the white heart was a symbol of royalty in these lands and otto's like i've never been for signs or portents your grace but if the gods ever did show their favor for aegon being named heir like we we know what we know what he's trying to do too, just like uh just like Sir Hobart, just like his her um her, just like his older brother. Right, they're trying to manipulate. I'm telling you, man. I gotta just collect my thoughts here. Otto is like Grima Wormtongue. In the Two Towers. Manipulating Rohan. Manipulating. King Theoden, right? That's how I look at Otto here. He's like a Grima Wormtum. But we cut to Viserys in the tent. He's drinking, just getting sloshed, lamenting. Jason Lannister, this fucking guy, he approaches. He's like, here, here's this cool spear, your grace. Also, while I have you, how about I strengthen your position by marrying your daughter? Viserys is like, what the fuck are you talking about, bro? Viserys missing some figures. He can't properly hold the spear that Jason Lannister gives him. Remember, like, jumping ahead here, just real quick, on his first thrust, when he stabs the deer, you can tell he can't grip it properly because he's got eight fingers now because his fingers rotted away from the throne slicing him. Hashtag Maester Conspiracy. Hashtag Unworthy King. Right, but when he stabs the deer, he's off center too. You can tell his blow is really weak. He's drunk as shit at this point, right? Probably hung over from the night before. I mean, my my man Bobby B. He'd be so disappointed with Viserys right now on this hunt. Bobby B. would never have four men hold a deer down so he could stab it. He'd track that shit himself and take it out. Bobby B, man. Robert Baratheon. Gotta love the dude. But Otto steps in here and basically says, I overheard you, Grace. No matter. You know what would be a better idea? Hear me out. 
What if Rhaenyra married her two-year-old brother? By the time she comes of age, and he's old enough to consummate the marriage, she won't be able to have children. It'll be super high risk for her, and she'll most likely die in childbirth, either naturally or by the maces of Old Town who use her age as a cover-up, and Aegon will be king anyways. That's basically what's going on here. That is basically what Otto is trying to make a play on. Right? So, so mar marry Rhaenyra to Aegon now. In 15 years, she'll be too old for childbirth. She'll no doubt have complications, and the problem will take care of itself. So if Rhaenyra gets exed in childbirth, Aegon, who, remember, has high tower blood, can take a new wife of his choosing and choose a wife who's not Targaryen, so the blood of every heir, generation after generation, will appear to be more high tower than Targaryen. So Otto is trying to manipulate Varys here, but Viserys, um, he, he has another, he has enough where, wherewithal to say fuck that. Kid's two years old, Otto. We get this great shot of Viserys dolling. It's like dolling out from Viserys. He's sitting alone. He's drinking. The party rages on, but Sir Lionel approaches. Sir Lionel, hashtag goat of the small council. We learn in three episodes that this dude gives Viserys good counsel. And his counsel isn't disguised in desire or bias. He's like, I'm going to give you the same advice I gave you three years ago. Marry a Valerion. Lainor uh, is the obvious match here. He's the ultimate bachelor. He, he's a dragon rider. He has the blood of old Valeria in him. He's half Targaryen. He has a dragon in sea smoke, which we say see later. And he comes from the richest family in Westeros. I think that Lionel should have been Viserys' hand, not Otto. I think it's evident here. He may have his own, own he may have his own designs, but so far we haven't seen them on screen. He's Viserys' only ally on the council. But we get Viserys here. He he's questioning his power as Targaryen king. He's questioning his power when he says he can't even rein in his daughter of 17. And Ryan Connell gives us book readers a, a subtle wink-wink here when he, he has Lionel say that Jaehaerys ruled over a peaceful kingdom for 50 years while his children drove him mad, his daughters in particular. But he's like, if you want to fix the situation, you should marry Lainor. You should have Rhaenyra marry Lainor. That is, if, if, if Lainor returns from the fighting in the Stepstones. So what Sir Lionel does here is he plants two seeds in Viserys' mind. One, marry uh, Rhaenyra to Lainor. And two, in order to make that happen, he needs to survive this war. He needs to survive the, the fighting in the Stepstones. Damon needs more men. That's the, that's the subtext here. We need to send Damon more aid. But we cut to Rhaenyra and Sir Kristen. They make camp for the night. Kristen gets truck-sticked by Pumbaa. Pumbaa's about to rip Rhaenyra apart. Kristen comes back in and stabs it. Pumbaa has a seizure. And Rhaenyra goes on this ballistic like tirade and stabs Pumbaa over and over and over again, screaming, releasing all her anger, probably envisioning it's Alicent. And the more that she stabbed the boar, 
the more she ended up looking like Emma Darcy, like older Rhaenyra. Like she had the way she has her hair here is the way that Emma Darcy as Rhaenyra wears her hair in the trailers, maybe symbolizing that the night that this was a night that everything changed for Rhaenyra, right? With the boar, with the uh, white heart presenting itself to her instead of Viserys. I was like, damn, she looks like Emma with all the blood all over her face and in that hair. And speaking of the blood, that fake blood VFX was bad. It was it was pretty rough, man. I mean, not the best blood blood splatter, right? Looks CG. Not great. Not great at all. But Viserys stumbles out to the bonfire, right? Still drinking, drunk as fuck. He's staring into the fire, thinking about every decision he's made that led him to this point. You got to remember the last time he stood in front of a fire like this was the pyre that was on fire at Emma's, fu at Emma's funeral, his wife, right? But Allison comes out to be with him. He confesses he was obsessed with his dream. What is the power of dragons compared to the power of prophecy, he says. My family's had dragon riders. They've never had dreamers. And when he talks about his heir here, he specifies male heir. He doesn't just say an heir with Aegon's crown, right? The way he said it to Emma. He never specified that it was a male heir, heir to Emma. But here, he specifies it's a male heir. I thought that was interesting. He's like, my obsession killed my wife. I had hoped that naming Rhaenyra would be a way out of my grief and regret by honoring her mother. And even here, Allison is defending Rhaenyra, saying, oh, but it did, it did. But Viserys is like, what if I was, a, what if I was wrong with, about all this? But Viserys is like, what if I was wrong about all this? And all I could think about, all I could think about in the scene was how their faces must have been melting off. Like, you ever stand close to a bonfire and it's so hot you have to, like, step back? That's what I was thinking about this entire scene. But Patty Constantine, man, has been carrying the show. Not that it needs to be carried by any single performance, but I think if anybody deserves an Emmy, it's him. He's crushing. But we cut to the morning here, and the men have captured a stag for Viserys. And we're just coming off of the scene with him confessing he so wanted to be one of those Dreamer Kings, right? And now here, we see that they've captured a... A stag, but it's not the white heart. It's just your normal, everyday stag. And Viserys just looks down in disappointment, as if he believes he and Aegon truly weren't meant to be king. Jason Lannister gives him the spear. And yeah, we, we see he can't even land a killing blow the first go-round. And this says a lot about Viserys as king. This is all for show. It's all for show. All the lords of Westeros... High Lords of Westeros gathered round to watch Viserys kill the stag. It tells me that Viserys only has power because the people give it to him, not because he takes it for himself. And even when they, even when the Lords capture a stag for him, they give him this opportunity to show his power. He can't even take it on the first go. This makes me miss Robert. R.I.P. Bobby B. I mean, he's not born yet, but big sad. Big sad. Robert Baratheon, amazing king. Gotta love him. But the next scene here, we actually see 
Rhaenyra, overlooking the Kingswood on her way back to the camp, dried blood in her hair, and the White Heart presents itself to her. And I gotta think, for Rhaenyra, this reassures her that she is the one who should be the heir. She chooses not to kill the White Heart, but think about it. Really think about it here. If she did kill the White Heart and bring it back to camp, this would have bolstered her claim as the heir, not Aegon. It would have been a sign of her legitimacy and a sign that Viserys got it right the first time. But she didn't kill the White Heart. For her, for Rhaenyra, it was enough to know it for herself. But yeah, man, she could have rolled back into camp like bitch you thought. But she chose not to kill an innocent animal, a sacred animal, that would have made all the wards at the camp reconsider Aegon as the heir. Instead, she came back to camp all dirty, bloodied, showing she has more grit and heart for the crown than her father ever had. But as she strolls into camp with Sir Kristen, uh, everybody watches on. And, and you know they're all celebrating Viserys killing this basic stag. And we see everybody's reactions. And my favorite is Sir Harwin Breakbones. He's given, he's given me major Tormund vibes when Tormund looks at Brienne, if you remember that in Thrones. Like, all creepy. <laughs> you know, dude's just like half chubbed, seeing her covered in blood and dirt as he skins that rabbit. I think Condal knew what he was doing here with that rabbit skinning symbolism. I love Ryan Condal at this point, man. It's comforting to know he's running the show. And it's the little things like this that go totally unnoticed by casual fans that make us book readers proud that we have a dude that's even an even bigger fan of the lore than we are. But. Viserys looks on like, okay, maybe I should keep Rhaenyra my heir. The white stag never presented itself to me on Aegon's name day. Right? You see Jason Lannister. He's like disgusted. He's like, nah, I wouldn't marry that anyways. She's covered in shit and blood. But Harwin Breakbones, he's all into it. We cut to Otto coming to see Alicent after they return from the Kingswood back to the Red Keep. She's in the same dress she's been in all day. Probably musty as fuck. Otto presses her after knowing Viserys didn't even see the White Heart. And then he's probably questioning Aegon as heir. Right? He's trying to he he wants to convince Viserys to name Aegon sooner rather than later. For the High Tower's sake. Allison's like, dude, we just got back from a long fucking day. It's hot as hell. Can you wait five minutes while I wash my ass and get out of this musty dress? Otto's telling her to basically disinherit her best friend. The realm would tear itself apart, he says, if they skipped over Aegon, if Rhaenyra skipped over Aegon to the throne. Otto's just a pawn for Old Town, I'm telling you. Right? He's a pawn for Old Town, he's a pawn for the Citadel, he's a pawn for the Faith. Now, the Faith militant isn't in King's Landing yet, but they're operating in Old Town. But he brings up the fact that um, Aegon's right to the throne, to, to deny Aegon's right to the throne is to assail the laws of gods and men. Laws and, and gods. Oh, laws of gods and men. Not just men, but the gods. So that makes me believe that Otto is 
also a pawn for the faith in Old Town, for the Citadel. But we see Allison, after the scene, she meets with Viserys and gives him good counsel. She says, Rhaenyra must believe it's her choice to, to marry Viserys. And if you're going to do this for Rhaenyra, you should also help Damon too. Is it better for the realm, for Rhaenyra, or Aegon, whoever you choose, to succeed you, if the crab feeder thrives or is vanquished? And this scene shows me that Alicent has sway over Viserys within just a few short years. Especially after giving him a son. Right? You'd have to think that Viserys now heeds her counsel a lot more because she basically helped him fulfill a prophecy. Right? For years, people have been telling Viserys to do something about this crab feeder. Now here comes Alicent telling him what they've been telling him for years. But we cut to Viserys uh, meeting with Rhaenyra the following morning. And yeah, man, I mean, we get our first Starbucks cup moment in House of the Dragon just before Viserys hands the letter to the Kingsguard. I don't even know if it's Kingsguard. He's not wearing Kingsguard armor. I think he's just regular foot soldier, um, a messenger. He hands Before he hands the letter, or, or I would say as he hands the letter for Damon to this poor guard who Damon absolutely fucking wrecks when he gets to the Stepstones. Poor dude. But look down at Viserys' hands. You, you see the green sleeves over his two fingers here? Somebody sent a TikTok of Viserys' green fingers with the Jurassic Park theme over it to me on Instagram. And at first I was like, no way, because it would have been trending if this happened, like just like the Starbucks cup in season eight was trending. Obviously this isn't as bad, so it it's hard to pick out. Um, it's not as obvious, but it's, it's a definite L for the VFX team for forgetting about the shot. Major L. Hey, I got to call it how I see it. This was, this was sloppy, but Rhaenyra walks in and look, Millie Alcock is beautiful, okay? She's a beautiful girl. But I think she is absolutely stunning in the scene. In all caps, stunning. I think I think it's probably the way they laid her wig. Her hair looks amazing in the scene. I was literally taken aback by how beautiful she looks. I literally, ex- I literally exclaimed out loud, oh my gosh, she looks so beautiful. So... Yeah, I mean, sh- shout out to Millie. Wow. Uh, Viserys tells her that he's sending aid to Damon. He apologizes and asks why every effort on his part has to be met with resistance. And Rhaenyra says, because you mean to replace me. And just think, as a father, I'm not a father, but... If you have a daughter, if you're any fathers out there that have daughters or even have children, imagine hearing your daughter think that she thinks that you want to replace her. That's just heartbreaking to hear as a parent. She says, you have no further use for me. You might as well trade me for a mountain or a stronghold or a fleet of ships. And this hurts for Sarah. He's like, we must marry to forge alliances and marry for advantage to continue to be a strong family. You've always known this. 
but you can see the pain on his face. He doesn't seek to replace her, right? He's noticed that over these past few years, she's been alone, she's been angry, and he wants to see her happy. She's like, you think a man would do it? She's like, if you if it was for advantage, you would have wed Lena Valerian. And Viserys is like, I know, like you're right, okay? But this is also another great example of how smart Rhaenyra is and how weak Viserys is. Viserys is like, you need to marry to sure up your succession to make children, to further the line. And he's like, you know what? Fuck. Like, I'm just exhausted, Rhaenyra. You know what? Make that decision for yourself. God. <laughs> it's too much for me. But Allison did do wonders on, on him here. Rhaenyra doesn't know what to say. She smirks. She looks away. And you have to imagine that this feels like a weight lifted off of her shoulders. She went from feeling like she was imprisoned, literally imprisoned within that wheelhouse, imprisoned in the family to being free with that one line. And, you know, before she leaves the room, Viserys keeps it a buck here. He's like, listen, Venera, I did waver, but on your mother's memory, you will not be supplanted. So at least for the time being, Rhaenyra has the wards of Westeros' oath still intact, and she has her father's word that Aegon will not jump over her in the line of succession. So here, again, we see Viserys making decisions based on emotion and hoping that Rhaenyra is smart enough to make her decision based on political and strategic reasoning. He trusts her to do what's right at the end of the day. It's her decision, not his. And this is a common theme we've seen thus far from Viserys, avoiding responsibility, avoiding his decisions that may make one person happy and anger another, he says. But that decision now rests with Rhaenyra. And Viserys can sort of breathe a sigh of relief here. But it's an amazing scene, amazing dialogue. This is why we love Game of Thrones. I actually like dissecting these quieter scenes more than the action scenes. It's, it's really hard to, to cover the action scenes because of the editing and the chaos on screen. So I really do love covering these, these intimate scenes of people just talking in rooms. But speaking of action... We cut from the small council chambers in King's Landing across the narrow sea over to the step zones just off the coast of Essos. We see Lord Corlys. We see his brother, Vaemon Valerion. We see Corlys's son, Lenor. And we see Lenor's best friend, Joffrey Lawnmouth, playing. They're, they're all playing D&D on the war table. Vaemon says, We had 16 ships, or we have 16 ships. 60 knights and 700 foot soldiers left and we got enough food for two weeks at best and here we get the breakdown of Lenor's plan they have to offer up some bait to force the crab feeder and his men out of the caves Damon's like who Lanor's like we offer Damon love Lanor here man this kid gets it he's young but he's already a stoic in a way He's a stoic, strategic war advisor in situations like this. Obviously learned from Pops, right? He's like, what have you done, Uncle Vayman? How have you contributed other than being a little bitch? But it seems like Lenor 
and Rhaenyra could be a great match, right? Both are close in age. Both are dragon riders. Both have similar sassy personalities. So, so Condal did a great job at setting this up. My favorite part of the episode was when Sea Smoke picked up those two pirates and flung them, and, and it cuts to Lanor screaming. Instantly likable character. Excited to see more of him. But Damon pulls up. Classic Damon pulling up while people talk shit about him. Right? Viserys' emissary shows up, and Damon reads Viserys' letter and smirks. Then he beats the ever-living piss out of this poor messenger that just sailed across the entire narrow sea to hand-deliver the message. Daddy, chill. Damon's pissed, man. Like, this actually happens different in the books. Damon beats the messenger that delivered the news that Viserys has, has uh, had a son because he sees himself slipping down the line of succession, so he just beats the fuck out of the messenger. So they change that up a little bit here. But keeping it, keeping it on brand. But yeah, Damon, he reads the letter, beats the messenger. <laughs> and you got to think, look, Damon's been risking his life for years. All for his brother. All to protect the throne. While Viserys sits back. You got to think he's doing it to, to get in the good graces get back in the good graces of Viserys so he can return to King's Landing, right? He was exiled. But here's Viserys coming in with this letter. For the past two, three years, he's, he's been acting as if there's no war. He's never sent Damon help. Damon's over here trying to save the realm and save Viserys' ass from the threat in the East. So you got to think Damon's like, Listen, you're not going to not talk to me for two years and now you're going to come in and save me? The letter reads something like, hey, little brother, I'll send you a few things and, and swoop in and save the day. Because you and Buddy Cop Corliss haven't been able to accomplish what you set out to do. Damon's like, first off, fuck you. This is my show. I've been putting my life on the line. My men have died. And he views this letter from Viserys as pure hypocrisy. And you have to think that Damon's probably mad at himself too. He's mad that this entire campaign is taking so long. So he goes full rage mode, just like he does in the books. Right? And you got to think, by the time that those ships that Viserys is sending over to the Stepstones actually gets there, that entire army is going to be wiped out. They only have a few weeks worth of food anyways. From King's Landing to the Stepstones, it's easily a couple months journey they only have two weeks worth of food and they're getting fucking eviscerated by the pirates just jumping from island to island using the cave system right but Tam damon takes a rowboat lands on the island and it's shot in a way that leads us to believe that damon went on a one-man mission to kill the crab feeder but we learn he was actually working with everybody because Damon, Damon's not the type of dude to, to ask for help, even in the books. It's said he's never asked for help. He's too prideful. But here, you know, he put himself on the line. He'd rather die a hero than fail. Right? You even remember, Damon's like, it would have to take a madman to go do this on his own, to, to, to be the bait. 
Obviously, we got Damon here. That's why that's why Wayner is like, Damon, you fucking idiot. There's there, there there's no decision to be made here. It's going to be Damon. He's the craziest one of us all. He's going to do it, right? So th- thematically, this works very well. And it's interesting too because here we have Damon making a decision, a life like just like a life ending decision potentially on emotion. Very much like Viserys does. Viserys makes decisions on emotions too, not on political or strategic um, reasoning. But Damon needed that push. And Viserys' letter was that push. So we get the battle. Not much to talk about here. We see Laenor and Sea Smoke for the first time, which is awesome. Uh, got a lot of DMs asking why we didn't see the Damon and crab feeder fight um it's, it's a great question it's a great question i i would say probably like 30 to 40 percent of of the q a's that i got from from people were about this question i think all right here here's how i think about it i think we we might get we might get it in a flashback next week okay it's definitely a possibility it's not a probability it's just a possibility but if we don't i think it's safe to i think it's safe to assume crab feeder isn't a fighter right we never actually see him fight plus he has grayscale which would weaken him anyways he'd be too weak to fight so it's probably a very one-sided fight you got to think the the crab feeder is more of a commander than a fighter like i can't i can imagine the crab feeder hiding in the cave playing peekaboo playing hide and seek until the exact moment he thinks he has damon but damon was playing with him too the entire time and just sticks him and disembowels him with Dark Sister. Slices him in half. I mean, now that I say it, I think it would have been cool to have that sequence in there. Like a, like a cat and mouse, a game of cat and mouse, right? I think that actually would have been really cool. But it's something I can live without. Yeah, it's that's all right. I mean, it was probably a very one-sided fight. It could have damage the characters it could have it, it could have damaged the crab beater's creepy presence if they showed damon butcher him so easily but then again i think okay cat and mouse that could have been cool to shoot um i mean it was it was far more dramatic for me i guess with their execution on with, with damon descending into the darkness and emerging with the corpse i thought that was pretty cool but if you notice, there's there's a parallel between Damon and Rhaenyra here. Both walk back to camp in the battle, respectively, covered in blood, dragging, she's dragging the boar, Damon's dragging the crab feeder, right? Two, you know, entities that tried to kill them. So these are both victories for Rhaenyra and Damon. But I also got this question from a bunch of people asking if Damon has grayscale now. And yeah, I mean... Grayscale is an infectious disease. Damon does drag um, Drehar's body out, bare hands, holding his hand. I didn't see any grayscale on his hand. So I can't definitely say that he would be infected by touching his skin that hasn't hardened calcified yet. It's a possibility because grayscale is very contagious. And I think it I think you can get grayscale. I'm pretty sure you can get grayscale if you just touch somebody who has it. 
even if it's not touching an infected part of, of the body. Um, I had to double check the Song of Ice and Fire wiki, and it does say that you can be infected by touching the skin of another person who has it, or even unsterilized objects that were touched by people who have grayscale. But I also read something uh, from somebody who I trust completely with the uh, Song of Ice and Fire lore. She mentioned that um, the crab feeder, his grayscale was dormant. I didn't clock that in the show. But she said it, and I trust her. So maybe that's true. Maybe that maybe it's not. Um, I guess it's something we're gonna have to look for in in the coming weeks. But in the coming weeks, we're going to age the girls up. So I don't know how that's going to work. But I do know grayscale does take a long time to actually develop on the body. So uh, you know, I guess we're on Damon watch from now on. I guess we're on Damon. It could be something they do different from the books, okay? Because Damon does not get grayscale in the books. And I don't think Ryan Condal would be this sloppy because he hasn't been this far. It could have been a directing choice thing. I don't know. It's I I just can't see Ryan Condal being that sloppy with the script and the and the detail on the battle scene. But the final shot of Matt Smith here, drenched in blood, was sick. And yeah, man, it's a great episode. I mean, the other question that people posed to me was, you know, isn't he going to have grayscale because the blood is now drenched all over his face, all over his hands and body? Um, we have to remember that the blood of the dragon, it's stated in the books that the blood of the dragon is strong, is stronger than most bloodlines and almost impervious to most diseases. But there is a Targaryen in the war that does get grayscale. So it's like, you know, I don't know how to I don't know how to answer that question appropriately. All I can say is we'll have to see what what goes on in the coming weeks. Maybe they just, you know, they they completely just wash it away and and you know, maybe it was a mistake on the part of the production to shoot it that way with Damon, you know, not wearing gloves. Or, you know, an another possibility could be all that blood on him could have been blood from soldiers that were still in the caves that he had to slice through uh, to get to the crab feeder, right? He could have butchered tons of soldiers to get to the crab feeder. That's something uh, to think about as well. But yeah, man, I mean, if I were to rank the episodes, I'd probably go... I'd probably go three, two, one, or maybe even two, three, one. And if I had to rate this episode again, it'd probably be a full price um, out of ten. That's probably that's like an eight, maybe an eight point five. But I'd probably I'd probably lean eight. For me, episode one was an eight. Episode two, I'd actually lean like an eight point five because of that bridge scene was sick. And then episode three, probably an eight. But yeah, like I'm still leaving that one point five to two points for the episode that truly blows me away. And I'm sure we're going to get that by the end of the season. But I'm going to drop a few listener questions in here right now. So every Monday, I post on Instagram stories on my account at Visualize Cinema, and I ask you guys to send in your questions. And so I'm going to choose a few uh, here to answer on the pod. So first question from Justin here, is it necessary that one must see Game of Thrones to watch the show? Absolutely not, bro. Now you're good. 
You're good. Um, we got a question from OJ Johnson. Why did Damon kill the crab feeder off screen? Just answer that for you, my dude. Hopefully that was to your satisfaction. Uh, <laughs> got one from Jake up here. Is it just me that can't wait for Renera and Sir Kristen to fuck? To fuck, he says. Nah, I'm right there with you, man. Thoughts on the guy getting crushed by Damon's dragon at the cold open? Yeah, I talked about that, how, you know, the soldiers look at Damon like a god. And Damon probably didn't see him. Yeah, Damon, you can't see under a fucking 747, right? <laughs> if you're sitting on top of a 747, no way. Next question we get from Connor. He says, significance of the significance of Rhaenyra seeing the white puck. Yeah, I sort of went into that, how um, the white heart is basically a mystical creature that um, that's regarded as a good omen. It's, it's, it's a sign of great things to come. And Viserys is looking for this white heart and uh, looking to kill it to basically take this good omen for himself and to solidify it for him and for Aegon's potential claim to the Iron Throne. So that's what the, uh, that's what the white heart symbolizes. I got a question from Matthew. He says, who is a dragon rider and who is a dragon? Non-book reading fan here. It wasn't Caraxes, right? Yeah, nah, man. Um, that was Sea Smoke. That was Laenor Valerian's dragon. And sort of piggybacking off another question here from, I forget who said it, but uh, apologies, man. Uh, I, I, I know you, you asked, Valerians are dragon riders? Valerians can ride dragons? Yeah. Um, so Laenor and Lena Valerian... Corliss and uh, Rainey's daughter and son, they're half Targaryen. So uh, they have dragon rider's blood in them. So hopefully that answers your question. Got an interesting question from Ben. He says, or he asks, is Viserys' dagger the one that was used to try to kill the Stark kid, Bran, in uh, in Game of Thrones episode two? Uh, yeah, man, that's the cat's paw dagger. That dagger was owned by... It was owned by Littlefinger. I forget. I haven't seen the first season of Thrones in a minute. But it, it was Littlefinger's because Catelyn comes back to King's Landing from Winterfell. She presents the dagger to a good friend <laughs> in Littlefinger. Like, he's like a brother to me, Ned. <laughs> Slap in the face. But um, yeah, he, she presents the dagger, the dagger to Littlefinger. He's like, it's mine. And then he says, I sold that dagger to Tyrion Lannister. Right? And then Catelyn goes on a hunt for Tyrion. So yeah, to answer your question, yes, that is the same dagger that Viserys has on his hip. That is the dagger in Game of Thrones. Question from Tim the Fish. What's up, Tim? How can Damon just fake surrender? Are there no laws against it in Westeros? Yeah, there, there's no Geneva Convention laws. There's, there's no laws against... Um, fake surrendering in, in this world. Good question, though. Zach says, I'm not ready for Millie Alcock to not be in the show anymore. Dude, me, me neither. But I'm sure Emma's going to crush. I was hoping to see Vagar this episode, Andrew says. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get we'll get uh, <laughs> old Nan Vagar. We'll get her soon. No doubt. She's fucking huge. She's the biggest dragon on the show. I'm actually, I'm actually more excited to see 
the three dragons on uh, Dragonstone that we haven't seen yet. Um, Cannibal, Sheep Stealer, and I forget the other one, but I'm really excited to see Cannibal and Sheep Stealer for sure. From Jacob, uh, honestly feels like the Maesters are plotting against House Targaryen. Yeah, yeah, we've been saying that all along. I agree. Bookworm Kim asks, do you think they'll deviate from the books? Feeling on point so far, no surprises. Yeah, they're going to deviate from the books. Um, they've, deviated, they've deviated ever so slightly so far. Um, nothing nothing too crazy, but they're going to they're gonna deviate just a little bit. And that's what I've heard from, from Condal and from George. George even says it in interviews that it's not entire it's not hundred percent faithful adaptation, not in a bad way, but they had to change some things just for um just for story's sake and for production's sake. Liz says, Did you see the tapestries in the bedroom? They get wild, yeah. Yeah, we saw them in episode one too. The um Targaryen orgies. Aaron asks, how does it possibly take three years to win a dragon versus crab battle? Yeah, they, they use the caves. They use the the Dornish tactic of hiding in the caves and, and jumping from island to island and using the cave system uh, at night. I would imagine that's that's why it's so hard. And the stepstones, you notice like the stepstones don't even look like anything to fight over, but it's a it's a critical shipping lane from Essos, from the free cities over in Essos to King's Landing. If you don't sure up that shipping lane, your 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 family's you know coin goes bust. If you're the Valerians, right? Did some of the lighting feel a bit weird at the battle? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I think it, it was a budget choice. This is the first battle that we're getting in this season. I think we probably have one or two more. There's tons of battles in the series. So I wouldn't even worry about it. But I feel like this is probably a budget reason. And that's why they used a lot of mist. So they could um, sort of save face on the VFX in post-production. They didn't have to sink as much money into the VFX by using all that mist. In, um, is it is it mist? Is it, oh, fog. I guess I can say fog. Yeah, by using the fog as a sort of a narrative device. Yeah. That's what I'd imagine. Question comes in from Brent. How about Damon just wrecking dicks, am I right? This motherfucker don't miss. No, he's fucking good. That motherfucker don't miss, man. He's good. In the heat of battle, he don't miss. No. In the heat of controversy, he don't miss. No. But that'll do it for me, guys. Hey, I will be back next Wednesday with House of the Dragon episode four. I'll be at TIFF in Toronto all weekend. I fly out tonight. Hey, if you guys made it this far, drop a five-star rating on Spotify. Help your boy out. Drop a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Really means a lot. Truly. Follow me on Instagram at Visualize Cinema for the Goods. Yes, Chef. Heard Chef. Thank you, Chef. Later. Later.